Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub podcast, I'll be interviewing Dr. Bertolan Meshko. Based in Budapest, uh, Bertolan is known as the medical futurist and has been featured by CNN, National Geographic, Forbes, the BBC, Time Magazine, and the New York Times. In his writing and his talks, he analyzes how technologies uh, from science fiction can become reality, both in healthcare and in medicine, in addition to the many other subjects that he discusses. He earned his PhD in genomics and has spoken at universities around the world, including Harvard, Stanford, and Yale. He's also the founder of Webicina, which helps both patients and professionals find trustworthy medical news and advice online. In addition to being the author of The Guide to the Future of Medicine, Technology and the Human Touch, and My Health Upgraded, Revolutionary Technologies to Bring a Healthier Future, Bertolen is the author of a recently published LeanPub book, Top 10 Trends Shaping the Future of Healthcare. His book features 10 particularly striking trends and stories on the future of healthcare and medicine that may have an impact in the short term. You can follow Bertolan on Twitter at, um, and I don't know how to pronounce this, Berchi. Uh, it sounds perfect to me. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's B-E-R-C-I. Subscribe to his Medical Futurist YouTube channel and learn more about what he has to say at his website, medicalfuturist.com. In this interview, we're going to talk about Bertolan's professional interests, his books, and, his, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience using LeanPub. So thank you, Bertolan, for being on the LeanPub podcast. Thank you, Lev, for having me on the show. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story, and you've got a particularly interesting story where I believe from the age of six, you knew what you wanted to do with your life. Um, do you, uh, can you tell us a little bit about what it was that struck you uh, at such an early age with such uh, precision? Absolutely. I, I was a weird kid, to be honest. <laughs> um, my mother gave me um, an encyclopedia for kids at the age of six, and, and I immediately fell in love with the, the scientific method. The idea that there is something we don't understand now, but if we keep on experimenting about it, thinking about it, uh, creating hypotheses, then at some point we'll understand that. So this, this way we, we grow or bubble of knowledge, and that just amazed me that that's how the world works. So I knew that even if it sounds weird, I knew that from the age of six that I would devote my life to science. And uh, particularly, I wanted to become a researcher focusing on uh, genetics. That was one of the sexiest topics uh, within medicine and healthcare. And um, actually, I did everything to reach that childhood dream. I, I was quite a good student. Uh, actually, I love homeworks. I, I know I'm, I'm strange, but um, I love these things. And um, I finished my medical degree uh, at the age of 24. And I immediately started PhD training because I, again, wanted to do research in, in genetics. But when I reached that childhood dream and I became a medical geneticist, I felt that something was missing. And the missing part was my geek self. Because in the meantime, I, I grew up with technologies around me. I, build, I still build my own personal computer. I live with smartphones and digital health sensors and devices all around me. So I, I really love technologies. And I felt that this love for technology will be left out in my job forever. And I just couldn't agree with it. Um, I wasn't really happy about it. So I decided to um, change, to do something different. And I went to a course at uh, the NASA campus in California. It's called FutureMed. It's organized by the Singularity University. And I learned many things about what might come next in technology. But I felt that... Uh, the, what I would love to do is to combine my my doctor self, my researcher self, and my geek self. 
and as there was no profession to do so, I came to the conclusion that I needed to create a new profession. And that's how I became the medical futurist, which means now I, I constantly analyze what uh, trends and, and the technological directions we are about to see. But my main job is to find out how we people will deal with it. So how we will adopt to new technologies or how we will reject them. Because I truly believe that what we are going through today is not a technological revolution, but a cultural one. So we people matter. And in medicine and healthcare, it's, it's, it's a really delicate topic because um, physicians feel threatened about new technologies, algorithms, diagnosing rare conditions and, and robotics in, in surgery, for example. And also patients um, go through a hard time when they need to face these new technologies and how to digest this huge amount of information coming towards them. And I feel like my mission is to create a bridge between technology and people and also between what might become possible tomorrow in science fiction and what is possible today. And the fuel that that motivates me in this very long journey which feels like um, going through a jungle sometimes, is my my devotion to science fiction. I mean, I call it devotion, but my wife thinks I have a disease <laughs> because uh, I'm addicted. I need, uh, from the age of, I don't know, from my teenage years, I've been reading and watching science fiction almost every day. That's where my, my inspiration comes from. Uh, I saw on one of your profiles that I believe you took a course at the Harvard Extension School about... Um, uh, that that traces science fiction through history and analyzes how it has understood science and technology, war and colonialism, sex, race, and gender, health and disease, and even investigated how science fiction interacted with religion. Um, can you talk a little bit about that subject and how you see science fiction influencing reality? Well, I would love to. I mean, I, I hope we have at least two or three hours because that's a very <laughs> hot topic right there. Yeah. Uh, I, I decided to do this course last semester because I, I constantly need to move out of my comfort zone. And, and I'm a very technological guy and I'm very rational. I don't even have a right brain hemisphere, I guess. But that course was entirely about the, the ethical, legal uh, aspects of the future, focusing on science fiction. So the, the best thing I learned... Uh, was that the the basic concept of every science fiction is called cognitive estrangement. The cognitive part refers to what's possible today within the realms of science, and every science fiction author describes that in a way. But the estrangement part, part comes into the picture when the author comes up with futuristic ideas, which might be scientific or far away from that, but it creates a tension between what's possible today and what might become possible tomorrow. And this cognitive estrangement is the is the uh, the motivation for our minds to keep on thinking about what could happen next. And I just cannot imagine a better way to think about the future than to than to think about um, a, a fantasy, a futuristic idea, a futuristic technological uh, approach. And then try to connect the dots between those things and, and what I see in action today. And why we, we went through major books and even movies in the very long history of science fiction, from El, the story of El Dorado, which was the first science fiction story, to contemporary artists and even Hollywood movies these days. I learned so much about how science fiction authors try to depict 
um, different genders and how society deals with them, uh, how it depicts, how they depicted, uh, how religions changed over the last hundreds of years, how technology found a way into our lives and how it could become even worse in the coming years or so. So we, we covered so many things that um, it, it changed my whole view about futuristic studies per se and also about how I do my own job. Moreover, the, the methods I learned there as a student, uh, I will use those methods as an educator at the um, Semmelweis Medical School where I teach digital health and, and futuristic studies to medical students because those methods are very innovative compared to what we have been doing in, in medical education for decades. There's um there's so much to talk about on this subject. Um, uh, one of the really interesting things about it, um, I watched a talk that you gave in Tampa in 2014, uh, which already seems like a long time ago. Um, uh, but you spoke about how there was a teenager, I believe, in the United Kingdom who wanted to replace his healthy hand with a prosthetic hand uh, because he felt that it was superior to his uh, normal human hand. Um, and this is one of these um, you know, science fiction scenarios that we're now confronting from an ethical perspective. Um, should people be permitted to, I'm the, I mean, that's not new and it's been around for years as an issue, but should people be permitted to alter their bodies with enhancements? And I was wondering what your position is on that issue. That That's a very interesting topic. I see two waves coming. In the first wave, and that's the wave that 99.9% .9 of people see, uh, we are arguing about what happens when disruptive technologies are not accessible to everyone in the world. So what happens when um, we just don't have access to the best uh, treatment options in oncology or the best robotic prosthetic devices because those are expensive. But Disruption must mean that it's not just more efficient or or faster uh, in production than anything before that, but it, it must be cheaper too. So I see a second wave coming in about 10 or 15 years when these things become widely accessible because of the, uh, the, the decreasing price. But then comes the new wave when people might, I mean, healthy people might decide to change a few things on their body and and who can stop them? I mean, it, it's my body. So if I want to have a prosthetic robotic arm because it, it looks cool when it can rotate in 360 degrees, then I just – and I have the money to buy that, then it's it's my decision. But what happens with society when, um, for example, financial differences lead to biological ones or healthy people, more and more healthy people want to become upgraded cyborgs because they think it would give them advantages in finding a, a job or just living their normal lives. And I'm, I'm not a transhumanist, so um, I don't believe that the technological revolution or the technological explosion gives the final answers to the future of humanity or the questions that we ask ourselves. I do believe that we human beings have not even expressed our best potentials and we are far away from that. We haven't even started. Uh, we could improve so many skills uh, regarding cognitive, physical and emotional health that, that I think we will take up the challenge with uh, the improving technologies to, to, to let's see who is the best or who is, who is better than the other. So I'm not, not a transhumanist, but um, 
I'm I'm an advocate. I'm advocating for technologies. Therefore, I try to find a balance between those in a way that these disruptive technologies, certainly, especially in healthcare and medicine, will facilitate our job and and uh, support us in many ways, extend our capabilities cognitively and physically. But I would love us to remain human. It's really interesting how um, money and these issues intersect. Um, one uh, thing I've thought about when I read about people who talk about achieving immortality, by which they mean no longer dying from aging, um, what it would be like, and I suppose this is, I guess, a, a kind of science fiction scenario, but imagine a world where there's a 300-year-old wealthy person who inhabits the house on the hill in your city, and you're born into a family that's poor, and you know you're going to age and die like a normal person. Do you see that kind of thing happening with uh, these sorts of technologies, where the, the introduction of them is so expensive that only the wealthy can afford them, um, but they create this very strange relationship between the poor and the rich? I think this is happening today already. If um, you are paralyzed from the waist down and you want to have an exoskeleton, which is a, a robotic suit around you, which helps you walk again, it would cost you tens of thousands of dollars. And only in rare cases, insurance companies cover that. In the U.S., there was a surgeon who got paralyzed and his insurance company, her insurance company covered the exoskeleton's uh, costs because she could start working again. And it's understandable. But in the vast majority of cases these people are left alone. If they have the money, that they can improve their lives significantly. But if not, then their lives depend on pure luck. So I don't believe that these things will happen. I think these things have already been going on. But we only get to such a dystopic scenario if, if disruption does not mean significantly cheaper. And what me and many of my colleagues do is that we push companies forward that if your technology is amazing and mind-blowing but not accessible affordable enough then it's just not good enough and you need to keep on working uh, but we are talking about longevity and making aging a, a chronic condition which is quite um it seems to be possible based on what kind of huge organizations and companies are working on that. But when we talk about normal issues today, many of us can't even access our medical records or we can't even export them. So then we could analyze our own data. And that's, that's just awful that uh, we deal with basic IT issues while we should just enjoy the advantages of science fiction technologies. So that's so my that's very interesting because you, um, uh, one of your um, interests is in social media. And um, uh, in one of the talks I saw you gave um, on YouTube, I believe, um, uh, you talk about how often there's a culture in medicine and healthcare where uh, practitioners don't want to engage with the powerful advantages that social media can give them. That's true, but that's not. I don't think that they they we can blame them. Uh, for two thousand years since Hippocrates, there has been an ivory tower of medicine, and within the ivory tower, us medical professionals, we have been able to access everything: the information, medical studies, technologies, whatever we wanted. And we also had keys, so sometimes we could open up the gate and let patients come in. We told them what to do, and they had to go home and and follow the prescribed therapy. 
but the compliance worldwide, the, the, the rate of how often people comply with the therapy is about 50%. So 50, it's really awful. Wow. If any industry were like that, they would go back, they would have gone bankrupt decades ago, except healthcare because our lives are at stake. But today, because of new technologies, it's called digital health. It's a big umbrella, umbrella uh, expression. And all the uh, things from social media to uh, smartphones, telemedicine, robotics, genomics go under digital health. So because of digital health in the last, the last couple of years, this ivory tower just vanished. So it's not breaking down, it vanished completely. And now patients and physicians are looking at each other, asking them, well, what shall we do now? We, we, we can see we can see you. I can access medical studies online. I can buy digital health sensors to measure my vital signs. I can get my DNA sequence from home. So what now? So what I evangelize is the idea that physicians are not key holders anymore, but they should become guides for their patients in the jungle of digital health information because there's a huge information patients should be able to digest. And there are many technologies and someone needs to help them professionally to find the best solution for their health problems. And one of the reasons I gather that they need help is that, um, uh, as you know from your work on the site you founded called Webicina, um, that uh, of the many of the, I mean, million plus sites that Webisina looks at, um, I believe the number is about 80% um, have false or misleading information. Um, I saw a report about that from the UK. It yeah. was about 80%. Yeah. And so the idea of the doctor as guide sounds very compelling. I felt that everyone has the right or should have the right to access reliable information about their health. And I'm not, I don't mean that we need to come up with um, disease descriptions. There are so many out there, but there are certain resources which are edited by medical professionals and professional um, editorial staff, staff um, resources that have clear contact addresses, a real company behind them. So they have responsibility and there are millions of resources without any of these, just false information. And in the world of um, alternative facts, it's even more important to to make sure that quality information is available publicly for free. So that's why I launched Babicina eight years ago. And still we are manually select the best resources and then we go back to them to reassess their quality from time to time. In this way, what we can make sure is that what we present as, res as a list of resources from in social media, from Twitter and YouTube channels to uh, Facebook groups and news sites or blogs, is that those resources provide quality content because they know they have responsibility uh, about that. Um, speaking of manual work, um, I know that a lot of your uh, interest is in technology and that make that makes sense that someone observing from the outside about someone who's a medical futurist, but you also uh, talk a lot about the importance of the human touch. Um, and I find this, I, when I was researching uh, you for this interview, I found it fascinating because people are nowadays quite worried about the effects of automation on the workforce, um, but there's a countervailing narrative that an aging population will mean there will actually be a shortage of workers in some areas. And in a speech you gave to um, a Canadian Senate committee, I believe, on social affairs, you remarked that um, the World Health Organization estimates there is a worldwide shortage of around 4.3 million health workers. This was a couple of years ago, so it might be better or it might be worse now. 
And it struck me that in the medical field, automation can actually increase the amount of time that doctors can spend directly inter interacting with patients. That's the point. I think we need to acknowledge two quite obvious things. The first is that without technology, we just cannot solve the problems healthcare faces today. A doctor shortages, financial shortages, the, the lack of access to healthcare worldwide, um, the lack of trust, trust towards the healthcare system. And the, the number two issue is that, but if you lose the human touch, we lose everything. So what I'm trying to advocate for is that we need to create a balance. We, we must include digital technologies, disruptive ones, into everyday healthcare, but we can only do that in a way that the human touch becomes the essence. Actually, many physicians who come against me because of these words tell me that I they think I want to take something away from them, the, the art of practicing medicine, the, the empathy, the, the chance for empathy and, and social skills. But then I ask back, do you have time for these? Do you have enough time for your patients to, to provide the, the right amount of empathy and, and attention that your patients need? As far as I remember, a, a study from last year came up with the conclusion that about a physician in the US has about three minutes on average per patient, three minutes. You don't have anything to do uh, time-wise <clears throat> in three minutes. What I believe in is that a lot of repetitive tasks should be automated and could be taken away from physicians because those things are not the things why they became physicians. Doing administration, uh, plenty of phone calls, repetitive stuff. But instead, though in that time, they could, ded they could dedicate that amount of time to their patients. And when we show them how it works in action, so how... A supercomputer like IBM Watson can help them make better decisions faster by checking all the medical studies that are 27 million, so it's really impossible physically to go through that yourself. Or how um, how social media can bring together physicians from around the world to focus on a very hard uh, patient's case. Um, then they understand that it's it's there for it's there to help them, not to replace them or get or take something away from them. But the more practical examples I can show to them, the, the better chance I have to to persuade them to start using disruption in healthcare. Otherwise, we are going to be just lost. Yeah, it's very interesting. Actually, um, preparing for this interview, I I contacted a neurosurgeon friend of mine um, who's been working on a project for a little while now to automate one of uh, one of the sort of many tasks that doctors face in their day-to-day -day work, which would, you know, which, which, you know, they, whenever, as I understand it, whenever a doctor encounters a repetitive bureaucratic task, they're, they have a desire to get rid of it. Um, and um, uh, I guess I was struck by the, the level of attention that's paid by at least some doctors to getting rid of work like that. His, his project is um, to use an algorithm to automatically, use a doctor's simple diagnosis to enter the information into the correct research registry, <laughs> which I guess doctors often, you know, they, they have to sort of keep up with or don't know which registry to put um, the patient's diagnosis in. But what struck me was, you know, from a patient's perspective, you know, you see the doctor, um, but you don't understand often uh, how much of their job is about efficiency. Yeah, that's a good point. And it, it sounds very rational. I think what physicians need to understand, and I'm, I'm 
I spend a lot of time finding solutions for this issue is that uh, we cannot be semi-gods for the patients. We cannot take all the responsibility for all the healthcare decisions. We are professionals. We must be an expert of what we are doing. But the patients, patients also must become experts of their own health and disease management. So when the ivory tower is no more, physicians need to come down a bit to meet, you know, halfway through the patients who must step up and take responsibility for their own health and disease management. And this way, the status quo is changing. Before we had a, a hierarchy, physicians told patients what to do and they had to listen and that's all. But now we have um, an eco-level eco partnership, a collaboration where me as a physician, I can bring my own data I can bring my own expertise about my own health to my physician. My physician brings their expertise and then we collaborate about the, to find the best solution. And that's a new status quo. And even I think only there are two or three examples of, of regarding curriculums where they teach this kind of new approach that empowered patients are there to help you because they want to, they want to get better, obviously. They want to use digital technologies in getting better and they want to collaborate with you rather than just uh, contact you and, and they need the best solution from you. It's impossible to give them the best solution because there is no one who can know all the things. There are 27 million medical studies right now. To go through one takes hours and there are one, two, three million new studies every year. Uh, IBM predicted that from 2020, the amount of medical knowledge, so not just medical studies, but the amount of medical knowledge, including expertise and exp experience, will double every two, three months. So it, if it's today impossible physically to go through all these and be up to date, it's going to be even worse. So we need help. But when we get help from narrow artificial intelligence algorithms, it means we have more time to do what we are the best at, providing care for the patient, showing empathy, discussing these things with the patient on an equal level partnership. Um, so what do you see the future being in the short term for um, AI and Watson and the way um, uh, healthcare practitioners and doctors interact with AI? Is it something that's widely available? Is it something that there's cultural opposition to? I think that the, the coming years will be a, will be about a chaos. But then if we can go through that chaos, that's going to be a very optimistic future for healthcare. The reason why I think there's going to be a chaos is the technology is not as good as we expect it to be. When we watch science fiction movies like Ex Machina or Prometheus or Her, then we see what artificial intelligence looks like. But when we come across AI in action, we need to realize that's just narrow AI. So it's not really AI at all. But when I talk with physicians who in the US use IBM Watson on a daily basis in oncology, and they told me that they, they thought that IBM Watson would make the best decisions, so they would not even be needed anymore. But what happened in real life was that whenever they came across a very hard decision to make about a treatment option for a patient uh, in, in oncology, they contacted Watson and Watson came up with a few suggestions, uh, scanning through millions of medical studies and a lot of English textbooks. So they could make sure that they they cover all the potential issues, even if they didn't think about that uh, in the first 
at first sight and then they can come up with the right solution because they they can make sure they have all the information they need in their hands and that that was not the case before so we need to deal with the issue that even in our own lives it it takes time to get accommodated to new using new technologies and in medicine and healthcare where where lives are at stake it will take a, a bit more time but the challenge i personally face is that i don't want to wait for a regulatory agency or a government or a healthcare organization to to bring science fiction to my health and disease management. I just won't wait for them. I if I get the access through a smartphone or through a social media channel, because there's a startup uh, uh, analyzing uh, biopsy samples and they can help me find the best treatment for my own uh, health issue. I won't wait for anyone. And if patients start not waiting for anyone, then that's going to be a chaos. But after the initial part of the chaos, if we if we prepare in time and if we make sure regulations welcome innovation, but they still keep products safe, then we can have a very optimistic future. One of the um, controversies that's alive right now is um, anti-vaxxers. Um, and these are people who believe that vaccines can cause autism. Um, and I just bring it up as a sort of real life example of how people, I mean, and you know, the internet is relevant, I suppose, in this context, but there's always been, you know, access to all kinds of information written by whoever had the opportunity to publish it. Um, how do you think social media, for example, can be used to address issues like that? First, I need to mention that in medicine, there is nothing to believe in. If you have a medical study and evidence behind that, then it's true. If you don't, then it's not. As anti-vaxxers have no evidence at all in peer-reviewed studies, there is nothing to talk about. Uh, but you are right. If you, do a, if you have a headache and you do a search for headache on Google, you will find that there is a one to three chance that you have um, some kind of brain cancer. Because, of course, that's not how it works in action, but that's how the Internet is structured. And I think the the, the, the potential solution here is what uh, John Stewart said. And he said that we need vigilance. When you find something, you know, look for the resource behind that. Look for the first resource, the evidence. Don't believe anything you, you read online. Um, when, I, when someone sends me a link and I can see that the, the website is... Um, clickonme.com, of course I won't check that resource because I know that that's not going to be uh, reliable. So we need, to create, um, we need to create awareness about the importance of evidence because that's how medicine and healthcare have been working for decades now. And physicians can do a lot in this uh, sense when talking, about, when talking in social media about all these issues. And I know a lot of physicians who have amazing online profiles and they know that they could reach a few thousand people around their location physically, but they also know that they can reach millions by having efficient social media channels. And um, uh, Wendy Sue Swanson, Mike Sevilla, Kevin MD, there are great examples how these physicians could have positive messages and they could just tell people how these things are really are based on evidence in, in peer-reviewed studies 
just by using social media channels efficiently. They do Facebook live sessions. They they actively tweet about all these medical issues. Um, some of them has have Facebook groups where they can discuss local issues with their own patients. So without using online channels in a medical practice today, it's almost impossible to to help our patients keep up with the flow of information. Yeah, that's a that's a great answer. Um, uh, you know, um, use use your judgment. Um, look for credibility, um, and uh, you know, don't necessarily go for the sensational and understand that a lot of information out there um, is false. Um, uh, I wanted to ask you um, selfishly um, uh, in your book, My Health Upgraded. I believe you talk about how people can sleep better, and I know you uh, track. You've been tracking your own. Uh, health and sleep signals um, for a long time now. And I was wondering if you could um, talk a little bit about uh, your latest uh, sleep tracking experience and what you're doing <laughs> to sleep better uh, now. I mean, I know, I know you told me before the interview that you've, you've had a new arrival in your family, so that's um, uh, naturally disrupted things. Um, but aside from that, what advice do you have for the rest of us? Yeah, absolutely. My my sleep tracking device just told me that I have quite uh, my sleep deteriorated in the last couple of weeks, but that's understandable. Um, the reason why I started tracking sleep many many years ago was that my sleep quality was random, sometimes good, sometimes bad, and I just got fed up with that. And I thought that I could give a score to my sleep quality every morning. You know how energized I am, how easily I woke up. But uh, I realized that, yes, my sleep was random based on these scores, but how can I measure sleep quality while I'm asleep? So I started using and testing different uh, smartwatches and health trackers that I can wear during the night, which helped me make my sleep better. And I learned so many things about sleep quality that I'm pretty confident now that nine out of 10 times, my sleep quality is more than okay, four or five stars out of five. And uh, in almost 10 out of 10 times, I can wake up at the ap absolute best point when it's the easiest to wake up and I still feel energized. Um, usually I wake up at uh, between f 5 and 6 a.m. every morning, even in the weekends. I, I like to work. And um, even in, the, in that one-hour uh, period, it's, it's hard to find the spot when, when you are not in deep sleep. And the reason why the sleep trackers helped me so much was that first I learned it doesn't matter for me if I sleep for six or nine hours. So I won't be energized just by sleeping more. It just didn't work that way. The second thing I learned was, for me personally, what matters is having a long, deep sleep. If I have at least one long, deep sleep or even more, more cycles of deep sleep, I'm going to be more than fine. I'm going to be energized. I'm going to be creative. It's going to be easy to wake up. So I found out what I needed to have a good night's sleep. But even as a physician, how can you make sure to have a good night's sleep and to have long, deep sleep periods? I had no idea. So I used the trial and error method. I tried a few things and I have a list in my mind now that, that helped me make sure I know exactly what things ruin my sleep and what things really improve my sleep. For example, if I... Um, have a late dinner, if I have a late exercise, if I check my my bright phone before going to bed, that's going to be awful. Um, so the sleep quality is okay. And, and I still use a uh, few devices to, to measure the quality from time to time. But the next challenge was waking up at the best time. And what I found is, was that if I use one 
sensor on my wrist. Um, and I use an application on my Android phone. It's called Sleep as Android. I think that's the best application on all the phones. Um, they can, I mean, the sensor and the, the application can talk to each other. And when I tell the application that I would like, I would love to wake up at five, but I give you ten my, uh, plus minus ten minutes, then it knows it has ten twenty minutes, a twenty minutes long period to find the best spot. So it, it analyzes my, my sleep cycles during the night. And when I'm in that 20 minutes uh, long slot, it tries to find the best spot when I'm in light sleep. So wasting my time, not re-energizing myself anymore. And it wakes me up. There's one gentle vibration, no sound, no snooze function, because it, it's so easy to wake up. I was going to ask you and, about that, about the um, uh, waking up with the vibration. Um, uh you know, the idea that we've woken ourselves up with these blaring red alert alarms, um, you know, for decades uh, has always struck me as crazy. It's um, traumatic. Why do exactly. You, it's, it is traumatic. I've never thought of that word in connection with it before. But I remember once um, the impact that um, waking technology had on me. I'm a, a snooze button person. Um, and one time I had a clock that had a snooze button that was you didn't have to push the button you just laid your finger on it and it's it's sensed that you had done that and honestly it made a huge difference to the quality of my waking up that i didn't didn't actually have to press down that i could I just see. brush my finger across and so what i use yeah what, what i use as a snooze function is um when i get the the vibration through the smartwatch that it's time there's one vibration so nobody else around me wakes up because of this and at that exact moment i need to turn to my phone and i have uh, 60 seconds to solve four mathematical calculations if i can do that it stops and i'm i'm really awake because i just solved four math math problems if i cannot do that in time then it starts buzzing around and it's very disturbing. So you have a pressure on your shoulders that you need to finish those four math calculations in, in less than one minute. And that's my snooze function. That's really interesting. What type of math is it? Oh, very simple ones. But but it's 5 a.m. and you need to find out the answers for those uh, simple math um, equations. Then you wake yourself up quite easily. I can imagine. Um, uh, switching gears slightly, um, uh I wanted to ask you about Theranos. Um, I'm sure uh, most of the people who listen to this podcast know about the controversy around the um, blood testing company. Um, and I was wondering if you could maybe explain as someone who's an expert in this area, um, uh, what what happened? How could How could something happen where people could invest so much money and such a... Um, uh, illustrious board could be gathered around something that appears to be largely nothing. Yeah, that's, that's quite a sad story. And I, I tried to watch it very closely from the, from day one. Uh, Theranos was, I think the biggest promise in the industry of medical laboratories. We know exactly how it works. We go to a lab, they take a blood sample, we go home, they analyze that. They have to take a lot of blood from us and uh, we, we hate uh, the whole process and it's painful. And then we get a result or our doctor gets the results and it's very you know traditional. There's no, there are no infographics uh, regarding the blood uh, test results, just old stuff. 
And Theranos came up with the idea that what about just doing um, one simple prick, one just one drop out of blood, and they can analyze everything they everything you need, um, hundreds of parameters and and the basic lab markers and and tumor markers, whatever you need. And they send you the results through a smartphone app in about one or two hours, as far as I remember. So the basic idea was brilliant. And that's a huge market. So, of course, money started flowing in as investments. But the biggest thing we learned about the downfall of Theranos is that, first, if something sounds good to be too good to be true, then usually that's the case. And second, as I mentioned before, in healthcare, we have evidence-based medicine. If you have a study proving that you have a point, your hypothesis is right, or your technology is efficient, then we'll offer you. If you don't have evidence or you don't show your evidence, then there is nothing to help you. And Theranos kept saying that because of business secrets, they just couldn't show the, the comparisons they did with other uh, lab, lab tests or the companies doing lab tests and it started becoming we started becoming a little um, um, curious about the actual technology behind them but they didn't share anything and then the, the Wall Street Journal had a very long article about these potential issues and um, that was the I think the first point when Therno started its its downfall and still we wanted to see the evidence. And I think a whole community would have uh, stood behind them because we wanted to help them. It was such a brilliant idea. But without evidence in medicine, you cannot help or support anyone. And it seems like um, they are about to get out of business. I'm not sure at what stage they are, but uh, I heard about the uh, that they broke up the, the agreement, the collaboration with Walgreens and there, there have been many other bad news about them. So what we get, what I think we need to get out of this is without proof in medicine, you have no chance to thrive. And even though there are business secrets, science works in a different way. You can still still keep your business secrets when you show the basics of your technologies. I mean, as it turned out, uh, as far as I know, they even... Um, kept on paying other labs to to make the traditional lab tests instead of them doing their using their own new technology because they could do that that's how much money they had and that's just nonsense and that's really awful so that happens when when they overhype something in in healthcare technology it was a big lesson for all of us because we wanted it to be to be true but again without proof nothing is going to work in healthcare on the um on the subject of uh money and the future and things we want to be true. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you see the future for healthcare costs. And I know that that's, a, I mean, a big question and that, you know, off, obviously countries often run healthcare policy at a national level. Um, but I think one thing a sort of layperson would commonly think is, you know, if technology is always advancing, um, why aren't healthcare costs coming down? Why are they always going up? Um, that, that, and I was just wondering what your view is on that issue generally. That's a huge question. I think the the basic reason is that we have um, so the structure of healthcare is like in the we are in the 19th century. The the institutions and hospitals are like they're in the 20th century. Why technology is in the 21st century? That's that's the first issue. 
The second is there are so many medical errors made in healthcare, which I think many of that could be prevented by using additional help from, for example, algorithms. Um, we we need to do so many things at the doctor's office instead of just bringing the data that we already have at home. And when I go to my GP's office, she knows, my doctor knows I bring my data from the, the blood pressure measurements and sleep activity, uh, sleep quality, physical activity. So I, I, I've got the basic stuff. I can do an EKG at home with my smartphone through a FDA-approved clinical device. Let's focus on the most important things. We, we, we have a data already. Plus, uh, even the, the medical record systems don't talk with each other. Uh, doctors need to spend a lot of time with repetitive tasks, and patients are not proactive. So even if they, they have the prescription for the right treatment, many of them just don't go with that because, you know, why not? And that's why it's awful. But in if healthcare becomes digital, and by this I mean that when data, whatever data we input into healthcare become digital, then they become transparent. So when I went to the Netherlands a few months ago, they showed me a system that they use. In the Netherlands, about 97% of the invoices within healthcare are digital. So they can use a supercomputer like IBM Watson. Actually, they use IBM Watson to mine the data constantly. And they can tell that which doctor, uh, clinic, or hospital keeps making the same mistake again and again because they see that through the objective and transparent data. So they can let them know that it, when you make those decisions again and again, your patients get rehospitalized later on or they get side effects. That's one thing. The second thing is we know we don't know enough about how we react to treatment. I myself had six genetic tests. So when I went to my GP a few days ago, I told her that here are my results about which drugs I'm sensitive to. Not because you make a mistake when prescribing those, but because metabolically, I, I metabolize them differently. So if you prescribe um, this drug to me, I'm going to have a side effect for sure, because that's how my, my body works. But by knowing these issues and these potential disadvantages, we can prepare. So she won't give me a drug if I need one um, that will give me side effects, require me to re be rehospitalized have bleeding or different kinds of side effects because we can prepare for that. I believe that the more information we know about ourselves, the better decision, the decisions we can make. The more digital healthcare is, the the more precautions we can take. But without making health, without transforming healthcare into something transparent, that's just impossible because people can lie, people can make mistakes while inputting analog data, and that's a really different scenario. So transparency and good data are um, uh, positive ways ways forward. Um, uh, yeah, that's really that's really interesting. Um, uh, especially, I, I would say, in the context of um, uh, controversies around the overprescription of um, pain medication, um, which. Um, you know, has, has issues with transparency, I think. I mean, I know this is kind of a segue, but it was just something I was reading about the other day. Um, I live near a city called Vancouver in Canada, where um, hundreds of people died last year from drug overdoses. Um, and this is a reflection of an issue. I mean, there's other issues involved here, but it's partly a reflection of an issue in the, a larger issue in the United States where uh, the overprescription of pain meds leads people to addiction. 
Um, and do you think, I was just wondering, I wanted to ask you, do you think that greater transparency in the prescription of painkillers could alleviate this issue? Definitely, but not only uh, greater transparency, but also having access to patient communities worldwide, patients who deal with the same issues I do every day, that's very helpful. In, in oncology, there is a site called Smart Patients, smartpatients.com, where patients uh, having different kind of uh, cancers, they, they can give so much support to each other and really detailed pieces of information or advice uh, that are, that, that's, that's very helpful in, in their journey towards becoming cancer-free. When patients have the chance to uh, go home, go to a website and, and add all the drugs that they are prescribed to, and the website can tell them whether they can expect any kind of uh, side effects or um, you know, medical issues, then there is something that helps them to prepare. So I do believe that with transparency, with digital health solutions, by giving data, it, by putting data into the hands of physicians and patients directly, that can provide so much um, support to them that we might be able to to avoid um, such really bad things to happen. Um, I have a couple more questions. Um, my last ones, I, I hope, are, are fun. Um, uh, I, uh, I want you have a section in your book where you, you ask, um, will the medical tricorder from Star Trek become real? Um, like many other Star Trek fans, that idea preoccupies me when I think about this kind of thing. Um, and I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, because I know you're very connected to all the latest developments and things like that in medical technology. I remember when I was a medical student, I had to use a huge EKG device, electrocardiogram device, and it felt surreal to to use that one and get a paper as a result, even though I, I already used digital health solutions on my smartphone. So I, since that time, I have been looking for devices that can facilitate the job of uh, medics and, and physicians so much. And when I come across such tricoders, like um, there's a Chinese one called Viatem Check Me that can measure your body temperature, your blood pressure, heart rate, the blood oxygen levels, sleep quality, and daily physical activities in one device, then I start feeling that it's, it, it kind of feels like we live in Star Trek already. Even though I'm a Star Wars fan, I'm really sorry for mentioning that, but I think <laughs> it's a religious issue, so I need to mention that. Yeah, I was going to say, isn't it a sin to connect the two? Um, but there's, there's, yeah, but there's a great challenge going on, the, the, the XPRIZE, the Qualcomm XPRIZE challenge, uh, through which um, many teams would come up with a tricoder, uh, some kind of a device that is um, cheap, light and can detect or diagnose about 20, 30 basic medical conditions from high blood pressure to diabetes. Uh, even though by, even through by checking your basic vital signs or doing analysis on your urine sample. So the tricoders are becoming real and that's, that's an amazing chance to, to live through this time when, when, these things from science fiction are coming to our lives. I mean, later on, that's going to be fun to use all these and, and do very cheap genome sequencing and use chatbot algorithms uh, while, you know, asking simple medical questions and getting answers for that. But today we live through this transition when something sounds or seems too good to be true. And the next day we start using that in practice. 
And how is augmented reality going to impact healthcare and medicine? Uh, when I was a medical student, I had to study anatomy from two-dimensional books and uh, colorful atlases. But when I when I used um, the Microsoft uh, Hololens augmented reality glasses, and I could see the real world plus. I could dissect um, a three-dimensional human body in from any angles and just focusing on the muscles or the, the, the bones, it was my decision, even without the formalized smell. Well, I felt that I would love to be a medical student again. So augmented reality can add so much to medical education. And if we add that even virtual reality is sneaking into uh, the practice of medicine, then if these devices become affordable, and the Google Cardboard project is, is quite a good example where instead of paying $5,000 for a device, you pay 10 and you still get the, the feeling of being in a virtual three-dimensional world. So these, by getting the, the prices of these devices cheaper, we will see VR and AR getting into real-life healthcare, and that's going to be amazing. Um, my second last question is, um, you spoke at the beginning of the interview about a cultural revolution that you see happening in medicine. And I was wondering if you could take a couple of minutes to talk about uh, what you meant by that and what you see happening um, right now. Most case, in most cases, when people see how disruptive technologies could change healthcare, they they instantly start focusing on the technology itself, or the microchips inside, the algorithms. But I, even as a geek, I need to say that this is not the one thing that matters. We matter. What matters is how we as society will reject or adopt them, how we will um, develop feelings for certain technologies like in the movie Her, um, how we will feel when people start becoming cyborgs or what we will do when... Um, I, I need an organ transplantation and with, based on my stem cells, a company could 3D bioprint an organ for me. And it, I know it sounds science fiction, but it's not. And I don't have the money for that because it's not affordable. So I don't think technology is the one that matters. What we need to deal with is, is how we persuade society to at least start talking about the issues. I don't expect people to, to welcome artificial intelligence with open arms or or start buying robot companions into their homes. Um, I expect people to discuss these issues because if we don't, if we don't do that now, if we don't start preparing now, then these technologies will, will jump into our lives so quickly that uh, we are going to feel that the human touch is taken away and there is a chaos and we don't matter anymore. But I think we will matter forever if we can take up this challenge and we start improving our skills and we focus on how to help people change behavior. Many people I know buy a health tracker and they expect the tracker to change their lifestyle. That's that's not going to happen. Only we can change your lifestyle with technologies. So what I try to do as the medical futurist is to help physicians, decision makers, governments, patients, to help them acknowledge that what matters is how they respond to that or how, how they want to change something. And with data, which, is pro which could be provided by technologies, it's much, much simpler. So we need a, a life purpose as patients and we need clear research purposes as physicians while implementing digital health into our lives and jobs. But this goes through 
a cultural challenge or a cultural revolution because technology will keep on improving at its own pace, whether we want it or not. But how we adopt them, that's a different question. Um, my very last question is, um, I know that you have uh, deep interest in how information is uh, gathered uh, and disseminated. Um, and I was curious why you chose to publish a book on LeanPub. Well, um, in the last decade or so, um, my my main mission has been talking about these futuristic issues to people. And I've used every different channel for this purpose, from doing Facebook live sessions to having a YouTube channel to Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and all these uh, but I felt like when I published my books through Amazon, that was a very official way of publishing a book. And that still, even though it's not it's not the traditional book publishing process, which I also tried and did not like, but still it took time to, to get the book to people. And what I loved about the concept behind LeanPub is that if I come up with original creative content in a spectacular way, a colorful way, then it can become available, readily available to people, I mean, immediately. And a few minutes later, I started sharing the links and other people started telling me that they just purchased the book, the ebook. They love the way that they can choose the price on a certain range and they could start reading it right away. So it feels like I have a close connection to my readers and they also know that they can reach out to me anytime they want. Well, um, thanks very much for um, choosing to uh, to uh, make a LeanPub book. We appreciate that. Um, uh, I was really glad when I saw your book appear. Um, it's uh, really good, um, and this was a really good interview. Thanks very much for taking the time to do this. Thank you so much for having me.